literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs. If you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to Austin Found. We really appreciate you tuning in. I'm J.B. Hager. And I'm Michael Barnes. And we told you when we started this podcast in March of 2020, there's going to be a lot of good, bad, and ugly about Austin. That's right. It's not all fun story. I think you used the the term warts. Yeah, Yeah. warts and all. Warts and all. We're going to share it. It's so easy in today's day and age to glamorize the city of Austin, but it, it, you know, we're never perfect. And we certainly were not perfect back when you go to the early 20s when the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, was prevalent in Texas, and that included Austin. That included Austin. They didn't have as big a hold on uh, public offices as they did in Dallas and Houston and East Texas especially. We were lucky to, to not be completely inundated with, with Klan rhetoric at the time, but there was clan presence and there was a, a clan hall on, on East Fifth Street. So yes, this was the second coming of the clan. The first was right after the Civil War when the clan used beatings and lynchings and other methods intimidation. of intimidation to to make sure that the newly freed slave enslaved people had no rights and and were terrified to vote, terrified to own land, terrified to do anything. And then the Jim Crow laws came in in the 80s and beyond, and those kind of just legalized intimidation of black people. But because things were loosening up again around World War I and the NAACP was coming back, what well, well, was starting, and there was a feeling that they needed to be beaten back down. And so the Klan made a reassurgence all across the country, bigger than ever. We paint a picture of you know, the Klan at this time, again, back to the 20th. It wasn't just rogue citizens with an agenda. No. It was embedded in, in state officials and law enforcement. Oh, and- oh, absolutely. And nationally, it was a big money-making concern. for Even though the dues were only $10, and that, that was the origin of Patricia Bernstein's fantastic book on the subject, $10 to Hate. But the leaders of the Klan in Atlanta were making money hand over fist, and of course, they were not doing what they said they were doing. Gosh, imagine that. Hmm. <laughs> uh, because they were, one of the ways they sold themselves to Americans was to say, we're going to clean up your cities. The politicians won't do it. We'll take people like bootleggers or vagrants. Not to interrupt, but this ties into the Prohibition era, which they got, they kind of rallied behind that. Yeah, they did. But, you know, themselves were drinkers, themselves were womanizers. The the old double standard uh, that, that, you know, is still true today. But every time you see somebody, preaching morality on the public stage and you go, hmm, I wonder what's really... Let's just wait for the scandal. Let's wait for the (laughs) scandal. I mean, I don't mean to be cynical because there are... It does often happen. ...morally upright people in in the public sphere, but but it's all too often the other case. Anyway, um, 
they sold themselves as doing that. Meanwhile, they are demonizing Catholics, Jews, anybody who it was to them considered morally suspect. And of course, African Americans. Historically, when you think of KKK, you think of African Americans and that, and as you said, there were other groups of op- opposition, right, to them. One of the things that jumped out at me reading what you wrote about this, uh, this was in 2017, is to be a Klan member, you had to have been Mm native-born. But if you think about the timing, their parents were the immigrants. Right. One generation. One generation from that. You had to be Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Now, I don't know how you proved you were Anglo-Saxon because that's a kind of a historical construct that is, I mean, they didn't have Ancestry.com back then. So right, how do you, right, how do you, how do you say, it? but it, it, it equates to white people. Mm-hmm. It equates to white supremacy. And what they felt was, at that time, it was slipping away. And so the Klan made a, a resurgence. They, they came back again. They kind of disappeared, went underground, or the Depression, World War II, and started coming back in the 50s and 60s during the civil rights movement. Which we've talked about on a previous episode. And I think we even described, well, I know we even described an incident in, in, at the Capitol right. where the KKK in the 60s showing up. Um, that's the resurgence you're talking about uh, during civil rights. They, they show up every few decades or so when, when the people who believe in white supremacy and they're, they're still out there feel like they're losing a grip on on society that they're not in charge anymore and the reason that this story was timely back in 2017 is because there had just been the the deadly white supremacist rally in charlottesville virginia and there were people there in clan outfits so the clan never went away is the the takeaway Correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things that inspired writing about this in 2017, the book you mentioned, Patricia Bernstein, $10 to Hate. The Texas man who fought the Klan is in reference to Dan Moody, who later became our governor. That's right. But, again, I don't want to get this wrong, was the first in the U.S. to sentence a Klansman? To get a serious sentence. And that's not celebrated enough. He was from Taylor. He went to the University of Texas. He was a very young district attorney. At one point, I don't understand how this is happens, but he was the district attorney of both Travis and Williamson County. And in Williamson County, he had the advantage of a sheriff and a judge and others who were anti-Klan. So he was able to prosecute a case. And the case is very interesting because it was a beating of, of a white person. What is the time frame of this This case? is uh, early 1920s. Okay. And, and what it was was a man who was suspected of sleeping around with a woman who was not his wife. And he was badly beaten in rural uh, Williamson County. Dan Moody was able to get witnesses. Dan Moody was able to keep Klan members out of the jury pool. Uh, Dan Moody was, for his time, a very brave man and a very successful man. He, and very young when he was young. doing this, right? Yeah, I mean, he, I when he became governor in the late 20s, he was like 33. Wow. And mm-hmm. 
he was mentioned as a possible vice presidential candidate alongside FDR. He was very popular for his time. Now, the the man who he got a, a considerable jail sentence for, a prison sentence for, was pardoned by Ma Ferguson of the infamously corrupt Ferguson family. And because they were going to end up running against each other. Right, they did. Actually, he had already beaten her in the primary. And back then, the, the Democratic primary was the election. He had already beaten her by many tens of thousands of votes. And out of spite, she pardoned the man. That he had put away. That he had put away. Whoa. And this is weird, too. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. When you What you describe between Travis and Williamson County mm-hmm. is very backwards from what it is today. Mm. I know that's a difficult. I feel like I can talk about it. I grew up in Williamson County mm-hmm. and then eventually Travis County. But the fact that there were more anti-Klan in Williamson County, you know, and, and Travis being the ultra-liberal place that it is, yeah, now it seems now today it's it's very backwards. Well, there there are several different elements involved in this. Uh, Williamson County had large Swedish population, large German population. They had always been much more progressive on the subject of race. Also, and and I I mentioned this in the story in Indelible Austin, because it was a rural county, everybody knew everybody else and everybody else's business. That's how it was when I grew up there. Really? (laughs) I think think it was even more so in the 1920s. Right? Can you imagine? And so everybody knew who the Klan members were. Mm. You know, with a little bit of an anonymity in the city of Austin, it's supposed to be a secret organization. You're never quite sure, okay? And for a while, the Travis County Sheriff was a Klan member. So... Yes, uh, Williamson County was the place to do this, to put, for the first time, a Klan member in prison. Mm. Okay, and I found this very interesting as well. I, uh, as a young kid, I had grown up in Georgetown, then later Austin. I spent a lot of time knocking around in downtown Georgetown, where there was <laughs> nothing to do. And now it's, it's really it. going through a renaissance. Right. Uh, and I have friends from high school that live there, and it's, it's booming. I did not know there there is a Dan Moody statue. That's new downtown. That's new, and because it's not without controversy. It's not is where I'm going controversy with this. because here we have there's a there's a Confederate statue, Confederate soldier there. That's been controversial for a long time. But what the county decided to do, or donors to the county uh, decided to do, was hey, we'll celebrate our native son and do something about Dan Moody. And since he fought the Klan and became a hero, he was a lot more conservative later in life, as people tend to get. <laughs> He's, but they said, now we've done it. And, 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 and luckily, our local PBS station or uh, public radio station captured this quote, and it is from one of, the, of Georgetown's African-American leaders, uh, Jaquita Wilson, and she said, well, it came without our input. Nobody asked us. When you walk around this courthouse, there's no mention of that there were Latinos here or Native Americans or that there were African Americans here, just white Georgetown. So, indeed, you, you put up a statue to this anti-racist hero, 
but you still don't have any representation of anybody but white people. I'm glad you bring that up. You you said that on an ep something to that effect on an episode early on in this series. It was somebody we, that we were talking about, you know, a, 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 a white male that did a lot for integration. I'm like, well, they should be honored. And you were like, no, not yet. Let's honor <laughs> the African-Americans, the Latinos. The You said that. And it was such an eye-opening moment for me. It's like. Oh, I think you're probably talking about Harry Aiken. The yeah, mayor I think so. Yeah. Who yeah. integrated his restaurants, the Nighthawk restaurants, long before. Yeah. Uh, the There's a long list of minorities we need to honor Honored before first. that. Yeah. Which, again, what you said, that resonated r- really well with me and stuck with me. Yeah. Uh, and 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 we're doing that today. I'm not saying we're doing it perfectly, but I'm delighted to say that that as the civil rights leaders of the post-war era begin to to age and, and pass away, uh, uh, we in the media are paying a lot more attention to them. And also, uh, there was a great ceremony j- just a couple of weeks ago where the uh, nonprofit group Latinitas, which works with lit- young Latinas, and what they did was put up by the Central Library, these mosaics of leading women of color who made it possible for this organization to be able to to help young Latinas grow up with confidence and the ability to face the world. And so, yeah, we're beginning to do what we should have been doing all along. I'll add one more thing to it. I I think you you put a quote in there from uh, Patricia Bernstein who said, you know, kids learning Texas history all have to learn about the Alamo. She should, they should all learn about Dan Moody as well. Right. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. I think here's the thing that's always been the case about Texas history is that it focuses almost exclusively on the 19th century and the so-called heroic period of um, the Anglo settlers and the Texas Revolution and then the cowboys and and then – and all that's important, and it'll never go away, and they'll be stripped from history. But the things that happened in the 20th century, the things that happened before the Anglos arrived, that's where we still need a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And so we need 20th century heroes. We need 18th century heroes and, and not focus so exclusively on the 19th century. And, and that's been uh, increasingly the case. We have been turning – historians have been turning more – to the earliest history and then the later urban history because we're really an urban state now. <laughs> so why not look at some of these urban and suburban leaders mm. and, and, and their histories? You can read more about that. And the book that you mentioned, too, if you want to go deeper, $10 to Hate the Texas Man Who Fought the Klan by Patricia Bernstein. But you can read what uh, Michael wrote about it in Indelible Austin, Volume 2. And if you're interested in Texas history in general, uh, subscribe to our free weekly digital newsletter called Think Texas. And you can get it at the the newsletter subscription page at statesman.com. And it'll introduce a whole lot of history outside of our uh, city limits that is related to our history here in Austin. And if you'd like to comment or if you have questions for the show, you can write to m barnes at statesman.com or j hager at statesman.com thank you for tuning in to austin found happy trails <laughs>